Welcome to this episode of Church Grammar. On today's episode, we talk to Larry Hurtado. He's an emeritus professor at the University of Edinburgh up in Scotland and one of the foremost New Testament scholars of the 20th century and even into the 21st century as he continues to do great work. We talk about his very influential work on early Jesus devotion, so how the early church worshiped Jesus and saw him as divine and sort of um, historically speaking and textually speaking, uh, how we can know that and how we can understand the ways that that happened very early on in Christianity. Some argue that this happened later on after some Greek influence and other things like that. And Hurtado says, no, this is something that happened very early on in the earliest documents that we have and the earliest proof that we have that they saw Jesus as divine and began to worship him as such. So we talk about that. We talk about the Holy Spirit, some of the implications for the Trinity and how some of this language developed and how the fourth century authors used different logic and terminology to work out some of these concepts that the New Testament may not have been as systematized on. We also talk about his interest in love letters. He says that we need to get back to writing love letters. And I was challenged by that and encouraged by uh, Larry Hurtado, the romantic, not just Larry Hurtado, the New Testament scholar. So I hope that this one is encouraging to you and helps you kind of know where to go and look at some of the really important work on early Christology. This episode was brought to you by B&H Academic. Go to bhacademic.com to see all the textbooks and monographs that they have to serve pastors and to serve the church and to serve seminary students and scholarship. And you can also check out our other sponsor, the Christian Standard Bible at csbible.com. Now here's my conversation with Larry Hurtado. But first, no big deal. Larry Hurtado on the line. Thank you so much for hopping on with me today. You're welcome. So let's talk a little bit, first of all, just about your faith journey. How'd you become a Christian and how'd you, how'd that lead into you becoming a scholar? Uh, I guess I, I would trace back probably my conscious um, Christian profession to my teenage years. Um, something of the influence of a maternal grandfather and um found myself, uh, well, as I've sometimes said, being haunted by the love of God. Mm. And um, so made a, made a Christian profession at that point um, and was encouraged very strongly by, my, by that grandfather to become a student of the Bible. And so I did so, you know, as a, as a high school student, sort of just informally, and then decided that I wanted to do that at, um, at higher levels. So Went to college, uh, did uh, biblical theological stuff in college, and um, and then uh, there realized that I I had a certain interest and and um, talent I guess for scholarly work. So I then uh, decided to do a master's work, and uh, and then after a few years, decided I would go back and do PhD work um, for the purpose of being a scholar. And did you ever feel kind of the, the call to the pastorate or have any struggle between pastoral and academic ministry, or did you always kind of know where you wanted to go with that? Well, it was um, uh, open in both cases. I mean, I felt uh, a certain um, pastoral or ministerial um, impetus or interest, uh, and I actually served as a pastor of a church in the um, Chicago metropolitan area between 71 and 75. Okay. Uh, after doing uh, while completing and after doing PhD work, and uh, and then after about four to five years there, uh, received an invitation to teach at Regent College in Vancouver, and that's um, that's when I stepped into the academic game full time. And so you were uh, you were born somewhere in America, I'm assuming. You're at, you've been in Scotland for a long time, but you don't sound uh, you don't sound Scottish. So so where were you raised? What kind of denominational background did you have? I was brought up in. Uh, Kansas City, Missouri. Okay. And um, did all my education in the United States. Um, and then, uh, as I say, while I was um, pastoring a church in the uh, Chicago suburbs <clears throat> up in Skokie, Illinois, uh, received uh, an offer, an in in inquiry, and then an offer from a Regent College in Vancouver. Uh, I moved to Canada in 19. 
75 and uh, lived and worked in Canada for 22 years. Um, until 1996, I was at the University of Manitoba for 18 years in Winnipeg and then moved to Scotland uh, to take the chair in New Testament here in Edinburgh in uh, 1996. And do you see yourself just staying in Edinburgh for the future? Do you ever plan on moving back here? Not immediately. Uh, I think if I went back to North America, I would move back to Canada. I wouldn't back. I wouldn't <laughs> move back to the United States. Well, it's a little crazy here right now. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's um, it's become less uh, comfortable for me over the years. Um, when I when I've been back to visit, I've been dismayed at the level of um, uh, bitter. Uh, division that there is in the United States, mm-hmm. um, with neither side giving the other any quarter. Uh, the old um, approach of uh, you know two-party politics of of working out compromises now seems to be anathema, at least to extremists on at least one side in that um, in 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 the divide. And um, and it appears uh, likewise that we have, uh, if I may say so, a president who has no interest in. Uh, reasonable compromises either. But um, I guess I, I also just preferred Canada uh, because of uh, various things. It's it's a, got a diff- different atmosphere. I like the idea of the taxpaying public being responsible for providing health care for all the citizens of the country, not just those who can pay. So I just I just prefer various things about Canada if I were to go back to the United States, uh, back to North America. But we I retired here in 2011 and um, have been in retirement since then, living here. And uh, my wife and I both enjoy the city very much. It's beautiful. It's convenient to get around in. Mm -hmm. Um, Lots of amenities. And, um, of course, I maintain my connections with um, the university and with New College and some activities there. I just examined a Ph.D. thesis last week. Um, So I I can remain active and able to to, uh, enjoy the benefits of not only the academic resources uh, of the university, but also um, the wider resources of the city. Yeah, there's no uh, no real reason to come back or anything pulling you back right now, I guess. So, no, uh, my wife's parents are now dead. My parents are dead. Uh, we each have uh, siblings uh, in North America, um, but uh, and and our daughter lives. Uh, my, both both of my daughters live in in North America. But with um, Skype and airlines and other such things, it's possible to stay in touch. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. I was telling my, my wife that. I don't know. When I do, I have to go to Australia once a year for, for PhD work. And um, being able to just FaceTime and Skype with my kids every day, I said, I just couldn't imagine, you know, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, when somebody would have to go to Australia for two weeks or a month and not be able to see their kids. I'm so thankful that that technology exists now. It makes it a lot easier to be away. Yeah, the one thing that we've lost is love letters. I need to up my love letter uh, game. I think that's true. In my my uh, romantic years of, of courting my wife, uh, you know, you the the means of communication was telephone, which was expensive a long distance. But you wrote love letters, and then you saved your love letters, and they became, you know. So I think my wife and I both have bundles of love letters that we've tied up and kept, and um, they become kind of you know artifacts, uh, which I which I presume that. You know, grandchildren and others would probably enjoy reading someday. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, you've now challenged me. If once my wife listens to this, she's going to be asking me where the love letters are. So <laughs> I probably ought to get ahead of it. <laughs> well, there's always birthdays and anniversaries and cards and things like that. I guess. Yeah, my wife's really good. She makes uh, she makes me a handmade Valentine Valentine's Day card every year, and that's oh, typically wow. her her you know one big love letter every year. And I'm just I'm really good at sending sweet text messages and saying things in person, but I'm not good at leaving behind anything. So. So let's talk a little bit about um, just about your scholarly work. So primarily you have, for most of your career, done a lot of work in early Christian devotion and, you know, how the first Christians came to worship Jesus and, and what the implications of that were. How did you get interested in that? I mean, early, you know, late 70s, you were writing uh, sort of right at the end there, right in the middle of the, the Martin Hengel and Wilhelm Bousset debate about, you know, how Jesus came to be worshipped and seen as divine and that kind of stuff. Was that something that you did in your PhD work or did you get interested in that a little bit later? My PhD work, uh, my thesis was focused very much on text-critical questions. I investigated the so-called Caesarean text of the Gospel of Mark and um, uh, focused on, a couple, uh, in particular, a couple of key early witnesses, uh, the Washington Gospel Codex and the Chester Beatty Gospel Codex, P45, 
and uh, examined the question of whether it was right to think of these as witnesses to an early form of the so-called Caesarean text and demonstrated to my satisfaction and to the satisfaction, it appears, of reviewers over the succeeding uh, decades that uh, they are not uh, uh, witnesses of an early Caesarean text. So um, I am very pleased to say that uh, my thesis required the rewriting of all sorts of handbooks <laughs> on New Testament textual criticism when it was published. Yeah, Erdman's published that. Right. I forgot about that. So that, that was your yeah, dissertation. They, they had the series in that day, in that time, but it, it was, um, it's been panned, passed around from various publishers. It's mm. now, I think, handled by Brill. Um, but, um, yeah, at the point when I was, uh, when my thesis was published, it was handled by Erdman's, the Studies and Documents series, which was started by the great Kersip Lake back mm -hmm. in the 20s. Um, so I, but during the time that I was doing PhD work, I also did a lot of reading on New Testament uh, Christological and theological topics just out of interest and um, concern. And one of the books that came out uh, made itself much more accessible during that period was the translation of Bousset's book, Kyrios Christos, which had originally been published early in the 20th century um, and um, uh, was translated in 1970 mm -hmm. into English only then, decades later. And, um, and uh, of course, everyone who'd, who'd done New Testament studies knew about the book, whether they'd actually read it or not. <laughs> knew about it. And so as a student, having it available in English was much easier for me to get, I have to say, getting get, to get through it and get at it. So I did and found it terribly impressive. Uh, I also read Kuhlman's book on New Testament Christology mm -hmm. and a number of other works, which generated an interest uh, in the topic. And uh, I thought, well, sometime I've got to come back to that. So as I say, it was a few years thereafter because I was in the church pastoring for a few years when I got the invitation to go to Regent uh, College. I went there and after the first year or so, uh, the senior New Testament person said he was going away on sabbatical leave. And he said, you'll have to handle the master seminar. Uh, do you have an idea what you want to do in the master seminar? And I immediately said, yeah, I want to do uh, New Testament Christology. So I used that as an opportunity to uh, throw myself into that subject more thoroughly. And out of that came one of my first journal articles, which was a uh, a critique of uh, Wilhelm Busset's book mm -hmm. uh, in the light of then recent scholarship, um, arguing that some of the key foundational pillars on which the larger structure of his argument rested, that those uh, key foundational structures had been um, eroded and shown to be fallacious by subsequent scholarship. So therefore, a sort of a whole new construction needed to be done. And so that that article, which appeared originally in 79, uh, was intended as a kind of uh, construction notice and <laughs> watch this space. <laughs> uh, and so thereafter, a, a good deal, probably most of my work thereafter was, has been given to looking at questions of the historical questions of the origins of Jesus' devotion. I also did a little commentary on the Gospel of Mark and have done you know other things, subsequent things on uh, occasionally on text critical questions as well. But um, uh, probably the great majority of my effort over the succeeding decades has been on the texts and the phenomena and the issues and the scholarship connected with um, earliest, um, what uh, other people sometimes refer to as Christology, but which I prefer to refer to as uh, Jesus' devotion. Mm -hmm. uh, because part of my emphasis uh, is that... Um, the um, remarkable phenomena that we have to take account of is not simply the terminology that was used or the titles that were applied to Jesus by early Christians and the kind of verbal claims made about him, but also the way he functioned in their devotional and worship life as um, remarkable um, sort of co-recipient, really, with, with God of their devotional practice. Yeah, so explain a little bit more about that thesis, um, I think that's where you have obviously um, influenced scholarship as much as anywhere else. Um, actually, you, I really, I just read, I've read most of your work, but I read the little snapshots that you just came out with that Lexham published that was just sort of a, for lack of a better word, a summary of, of most of your work. I thought that was really helpful. So could you just sort of summarize um, the big picture of that, the Jesus devotion, kind of where, where you're getting that from in the text and what the implications are uh, of that for early Christians? Well, it goes back to my um, first book-length contribution to the question, which was published in 1988, um, called One God, One Lord. Mm -hmm. And um, the question I was pursuing then 
in part had been triggered uh, by uh, a couple of things that I'd read. I mean, I, I, I uh, uh, that would be sometime in the mid-80s, 80, 82, 83, 84, I was looking forward to a sabbatical leave in which I was going to try to do a, uh, to, to do a, a sort of um, intensive study of Christological type uh, issues. And uh, in the course of that time, in reading things to frame a more exact question that would be feasible to tackle during that period, uh, two or three publications came across my desk, which um, helped me shape the thing very much. Uh, one was a study of ancient Jewish uh, mysticism and Merkava mysticism, and it's uh, and the, and the author made some reference to some of the apocalyptic texts, including the Book of Revelation, chapters four and five. Mm-hmm. It was a very remarkable passage because there you have uh, a heavenly ascent, which is sort of a key feature of um, Jewish uh, Merkava mysticism. Uh, ascent mysticism um, uh, texts, and the author goes up into heaven, he sees God being worshipped by heavenly creatures and so on, and then in the next scene sees uh, a figure that he describes as the lamb being brought before the throne, who's obviously Christ, and in chapter 5, the worship is directed jointly to, in the words of the author, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb. Right. And the author author of this text said, this is really quite remarkable, and I thought, yeah, it is, isn't it? Remarkable because in Merkava texts, Jewish Merkava texts, you ascend up into heaven often, and you see various heavenly beings and heavenly creatures and mirac- you know, marvelous sorts of things. But the emphasis is there's only one figure who receives worship, and that's the one on the throne. Angels, archangels, Enoch, all the other heavenly hosts do not receive worship. They sit, or they, they stand and they offer worship to the one who is seated on the throne. Whereas in Revelation 5, you have two figures who are being hymned and, and saluted together without, without a hiccup, without an objection. Another thing that came across my desk was an article by Richard Bauckham, who addressed this passage as well as some others and noted how striking that was. Mm-hmm. So the, the question that I set out to investigate during that first sabbatical leave in the academic year 84-85 was um, how did this originate? How could this have happened? Uh, what kind of intellectual or conceptual resources might the earliest believers have drawn upon in uh, framing uh, their practice and their view that it was legitimate to um, reverence uh, Christ with God in this kind of way. So that book was a a survey of everything I could think of uh, about uh, particularly the ancient Jewish tradition and um, what resources were available and, and where they went beyond those resources. And the key thing that I came up with was that the Christological titles that they give to him, uh, Messiah or Son of God, or even the title Theos, God, uh, and other terms, word, uh, image of God, all of this kind of language has parallels in Jewish tradition of the time applied to this or that principal agent figure who serves as a kind of chief agent for God. But the one thing that uh, you do not find is uh, that any of these figures, irrespective of the kind of um, honorific rhetoric that's applied to them, none of them is treated as a recipient of uh, cultic reverence, of worship, uh, in the ways in which uh, Jesus is pictured as uh, uh, as being as functioning in, in the earliest uh, texts. So that is the, the key claim that I made, is that the decisive, what I referred to as the decisive mutation in Jewish devotional practice was the inclusion of of Christ as kind of co-recipient with God of um, of worship devotion. And given the um, significance of cultic uh, devotion, of worship devotion, as sort of the red line issue for uh, conscientious Jews of the time, and given the also the significance of um, cultic worship uh, as um, the key expression of religion in the larger uh, Roman world, the, this is, a, I've argued from that point onward, this is in fact a very major uh, development and mutation. The uh, thing that I did in order to make my thesis more readily debatable by other people was to specify uh, precisely what kind of devotional actions uh, I was talking about that comprised a kind of constellation of practices that um, put Jesus in an unusual, um, indeed novel position. 
and I, I laid those out. So there, there are several of those that I've, I've I specified uh, in that book and then subsequently for the purpose of allowing other scholars to refute me if they could. Hmm. Thus far, they haven't been able to. <laughs> yeah, that brings up a, something I was thinking about, too, that, you know, you and as much as, as you and Bacham agree on a lot of things, and, and obviously you've drawn from each other in different ways, you know, one of the one of the things that I've seen between the two of you, and you can correct me if I'm exaggerating this, but, you know, he seems to want to make a little bit more of a distinction between the creator and creature line and kind of saying that, you know, Jesus was very clearly on the creator side. And you would agree with that, but would also say that that this principal agent, chief angel kind of idea uh, gave the early church some sort of a... Uh, some sort of a logic or some sort of an idea of what that might look like, but the, but but at the end, Jesus ends up being exalted beyond those types of figures. Is that a fair way to? to yeah, I think that? so. I I, I uh, argue that you do have a kind of variety of um, traditions in in the Jewish uh, Second Temple Jewish uh, time, uh, which uh, portray this or that figure as what I referred to as a kind of chief agent figure. Um, a kind of wizier or chamberlain, you know, a, a principal servant of above and beyond all other servants of God, second only to God in rank. Uh, this sort of figure appears under various guises. Sometimes it's an angel. Sometimes it's a, uh, it's a figure like Moses mm-hmm. uh, or other uh, patriarchal figures. Uh, in, a, in one or two cases, it's actually a divine attribute, such as personified wisdom or for Philo, the Logos. Um, and, um, that this, I argued was, was a, a sort of widespread, um, idea. It, it comes, I think, from the, uh, from the ancient Near Eastern setting that every emperor, um, a real emperor never does anything himself. He doesn't have to do anything himself. He simply says, let it be so. And that every emperor has a wazir or a chamberlain or a chief minister, you might say, whose job it is to see that the actual empire runs and um, and through whom the will of the emperor is executed. So uh, God, pictured as the ultimate emperor over all things, um, I think it was natural for them to, to presume that he probably had some sort of equivalent figure who did his will. And there are various speculations as to about who this might be, And uh, as I say. So this basic idea that God has a chief agent figure provided, I think, something of a kind of conceptual resource for the first Christians who, in principle, were able, therefore, to accommodate a second figure alongside God. The new and rather remarkable and, I think, surprising development is that they felt, it appears from the outset, uh, compelled, I would say, compelled by God to go farther than any of the chief agent precedents and to uh, incorporate um, Jesus as their chief agent, as rightful uh, recipient of uh, the kind of devotion that was not given to any of these other agents. Yeah, so it wasn't just that they were kind of uh, exaggerating it or, or making something up based on their experience of Jesus, but that actually felt compelled by the scriptures and, and by the things that Jesus was saying to actually do those things. They felt like they were being told by God to do that, not just sort of doing it of their own volition. Yeah, it's been my argument that the um, the exclusivity of uh, Jewish worship, that it should be confined uh, only to the one God, um, was uh, sufficiently strong for observant Jews, for conscientious Jews. Uh, and I think we have to see the earliest um, followers of, uh, of Jesus, the early Jesus movement, such as we have depicted in Acts and in Paul's letters, as being conscientious Jews, mm-hmm. not not crazos or heretics, but, um, uh, and not, um, you know, kind of trying to push the margins out of their own desire, but very deliberately conscientious and devout. So for such people as that, they would not, they would not engage in liturgical experimentation for the heck of it. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, and, uh, I think would have felt that it, uh, they could, uh, given, again, given the ubiquity, I argue, of this chief agent tradition, nothing in these traditions suggested that the that, that this or that chief agent should receive worship. So there was no impetus really in the Jewish tradition for this uh, that they could have copied. So, uh, and given their conscientious uh, concern about protecting the uniqueness of God, especially in worship, something powerful has to be invoked to account for them uh, taking this step. And I think that what we have in the New Testament are indications that they believed that uh, God now had exalted Jesus to 
this uh, remarkable uh, status, even higher than any of the other um, divine agents. And additionally, that God then uh, demanded that Jesus be recognized appropriately in cultic devotion. I think uh, the passage in Philippians 2, uh, verses 9 through 11, is one of those texts that I think reflects that conviction. God has highly exalted him so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That is, I, I think that that text says we must um, give obeisance to Jesus, and in doing so, we're actually uh, honoring the will of God. Mm-hmm. So how would that, how would their situatedness in the Roman world and with Caesar worship and other types of cultic worship, how does that play into uh, both the concepts and the language that they're using there? Well, some of the language um, is parallel to uh, the kind of language that's used. Uh, some Egyptian deities, some Syrian deities mm-hmm. uh, were referred to as Lord, Kyrios and its equivalent. Uh, the emperor, uh, at least uh, by the middle to late second century, could be referred to also as um, Kyrios, as, as, as Lord. Uh, with it appears a kind of divine connotation to it. And so there is some parallel in language. Likewise, uh, by, um, by the first century, uh, the notion of the emperor as son of a god, uh, son of, the, of the, the deified preceding Caesar, is uh, an increasingly um, frequent title, particularly under the Flavians and thereafter. And so uh, some of the language that we have in the New Testament has parallels not only in Jewish tradition, but also has parallels in the wider pagan tradition as well. Uh, that's evident, for example, in Paul's reference in 1 Corinthians 8, where he says, you know, there, um, there, there may be many so-called gods and so-called curioi, so many, so many gods and, mm-hmm. and, and so-called lords, uh, but for us there's only one. God and one Lord. So he's aware that um, Theos and Kyrios, uh, God and Lord, and other such terminology have their parallels and is making a contrast between the legitimacy of the one God and the one Lord and the others to whom these terms are are applied in in his view inappropriately. And then how does uh, the Holy Spirit kind of play into all this? I know I read a chapter that you wrote recently in uh, the Bible and early Trinitarian theology, that OUP book. I think you'd use the phrase with something like I should have should have looked it up before this, but it just came up. The uh, I think you said that they that they recognize the spirit had a, an intensely personal quality. I think is the the phrase that you used. So how does the how does the Holy Spirit play into all of this uh, apart from just the Jesus devotion, or I guess in conjunction with it too? Well, in a in a little book that I published um, almost a decade ago called God in New Testament Theology, what I tried to do there is to um, tot up all the evidences that we have for how God is. Um, is dealt with in, in, a, in a small scope. I had a word limit I had to work with. <laughs> so, um, um, but what I argue there is that if you look at the, uh, at the discourse about God that we have in the New Testament, so to speak, uh, the way in which God is talked about or described, it has what I refer to as a triadic shape. Mm-hmm. That is, there are three principles that are referred to. God, sometimes referred to as God the Father, uh, Jesus the Son, and uh, the Spirit or Holy Spirit, uh, evident in such texts as that, you know, that famous concluding uh, benediction at the end of Second Corinthians, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you. So you, you just find that kind of triangular language um, quite a lot all through the New Testament. The second thing that I point out is that the frequency and ubiquity of reference to the Holy Spirit in the New Testament exceeds anything else that we have prior to the New Testament. Mm-hmm. Um, exceeds anything uh, that we have in the Old Testament. And and even although uh, in the Qumran material, references to the Spirit are far more frequent percentage-wise than in the Old Testament, the New Testament references are another quantum leap beyond that. So the Spirit is everywhere, so to speak, in their their discourse, along with God and Christ. But the remarkable thing is the Spirit does not function in the same way as a recipient of worship. The worship practice of the earliest Christians is dyadic in shape. Their discourse about God is triadic in shape. And um, so that, that's one of the observations that I think we have to make. That's not prescriptive. That's just making an observation. That's just the way it is. Um, it's interesting that it's in the fourth century when uh, at a church council, the question comes up, is it legitimate also to worship the spirit? 
And the decision that they make is, yes, it is. Now, nobody ever had to have a church council to decide whether it was appropriate to worship Christ. Hmm. But uh, by the fourth century, that, that issue has come up because at that point, they have formulated more, more uh, systematically uh, what became known as the doctrine of the Trinity and, and emphasizing the three persons of the Trinity as being equal in honor and glory. And therefore, the question arose, oh, well, if that's so, as that doctrine came to be formulated, then what implication does it have for our worship practice? Mm-hmm. But in the case of um, in the case of the New Testament, in the case of the worship of Jesus, you don't have doctrinal formulations first. You have the conviction that something must be done and acted upon, and out of that comes doctrinal reflection. So it's actually the religious practice of the New Testament in worshiping God and Jesus that generates the key problem that is wrestled with in the, in the ensuing uh, two or three centuries, eventuating in the doctrine of the Trinity. And so how would you, I think, you know, in the, with the early church, one of the arguments that they made, the patristic period, one of the arguments they made for the Spirit was that he was uh, included in some of the doxological type stuff, like you mentioned, the grace and peace and some of those things. So how would you, how would you distinguish that doxological formula that has a, you know, a triadic shape uh, from actual cultic devotion and worship? Well, we have passages, for example, in the New Testament that are thought of as being hymnic, Either the scholars disagree whether they're actually hymns or not, but everybody agrees that they have a kind of hymnic character, that is a kind of quasi-poetical character, praise character, such as Philippians 2, Colossians 1, John 1, and of course the hymns in Revelation 5, which are overtly described as hymns, heavenly, albeit heavenly hymns. And it's interesting, in all of these, for example, the, the, one that is, the ones that are hymned are God and most often Christ. You don't have hymns about the Holy Spirit or addressed to the Holy Spirit. Likewise, when people are baptized in the early church, they're baptized in the name of Jesus. They're not baptized in the name of the Spirit. The Lord's Supper is referred to as a meal where Christ is present as the presiding Lord of the banquet. Um, The uh, healing and exorcism practices of early Christianity are done in the name of Jesus. Uh, You don't say, I heal you in the name of the Spirit. So it's it's just a fact that the Holy Spirit does not function in their practices in the same way. Although, of course, when you l- listen to them talking about how they understand God to be acting, they believe that God characteristically acts through the Holy Spirit, that they have been given the Spirit, and that's how they're able to have a kind of contact with God. They believe that Christ now operates in them through the Spirit. So if you have the Spirit, God has given you the Spirit, you have been given Christ inwardly as well. The Spirit becomes a kind of medium through which God and Christ are present in the lives of believers and operate uh, in the world. But their worship practice, it is interesting, it's just an observation, their worship practice singles out God and Christ, and the Spirit doesn't function in the same way as a recipient, co-recipient of of, uh, reverence. Even though, you know, for example, in the book of Revelation, every one of the letters to the seven churches hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. So Mm -hmm. the Spirit is the medium and the impetus for the prophetic oracles. But when you get to the worship scene, um, the hymns are all addressed to God, him who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. So how would you, as a as a Christian, as somebody who affirms the Trinity and sort of as a historian, how would you piece those two things together between, you know, the New Testament's not overtly worshiping the Spirit in the way that Jesus is being worshiped, and yet the Bible does teach that the Holy Spirit is God and is is a personification of God, not just sort of a, a face of God or a mode of God, but actually as a person. Um, how would you how would you distinguish and and theologically kind of explain all that out uh, personally? Well, I think I would hold off on the person language. Um, I mean, to 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 speak of the of God as made up of personae or uh, hypostases in, in in Greek. Uh, is a later development. Right, yeah, you, you have that in the third century. So, so I, I don't see the same kind of language uh, used in the New Testament. It, it, there, the uh, it seems to me that in the New Testament, what we have is a pattern of behavior and a pattern of discourse that raises some questions and some problems. And what you have in the ensuing centuries are efforts to try to solve those problems, mm-hmm. drawing upon intellectual categories of those centuries. Um, we might use different intellectual categories in addressing those problems. So I've said, if, if you were doing systematic theology or 
foundational theology today, you would certainly want to learn from what the earliest Christians did uh, in those in the second, third, and fourth century. You'd certainly want to pay attention to what they did, but I'm not sure that you'd simply want to repeat their answers uh, because they were working with intellectual categories that we don't work with anymore. Mm -hmm. I mean, they were asking questions like, you know, is Christ of the same essence as God? What is God's essence? We don't we don't think of divine essence anymore. Uh, what what would divine essence look like? The Bible doesn't describe it. It simply describes divine actions. You know God by the way he acts. Uh, it doesn't speculate on, you know, well, God is made up of this kind of element or that kind of element or the other kind of element. Uh, they talk about God acting, and that's how God is defined. Similarly, the language that is used in the New Testament to describe the relationship of Christ to God is what I would call more transactional and relational language rather than ontological language. Um, you don't have texts that say, for example, Jesus is of the same being as God. They will talk about, you know, Jesus has been sent forth from God. He's been offered up by God. He has been exalted by God. There's your transactional language at work. And the relational language, word of God, image of God, son of God, um, and so on. So it's either transactional or or relational language that's used because they just aren't thinking in the um, in the uh, heavily um, ontological categories that that later Christians were. Mm -hmm. That's 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 okay. Um, you know, Christians have used different kinds of intellectual instruments through the years. Um, and so, if if one were thinking about these things today, I think one would have to ask, well, how would we best describe a relationship? Uh, and how would we best describe it? Bauckham, for example, has had a, you know, has, has tried, has recognized this and gone at it. So he's talked about uh, Christ being included in the divine identity. Now that's a category that, that's different from ontology. That's that's a modern category, though. I mean, we think in terms of identity of individuals or identity of groups, even identity of nations. And so he's used that category of identity as a way of talking about how to think of God. God is an identity that can be inclusive of Christ as well as God the Father. Um, and other people may come up with other ways of doing it, but I simply cite that as one example of uh, a creative way in his part, I think, of trying to come at the question um, in terms of categories that are more familiar to us. And would you be uncomfortable using the divine identity language because you still feel like it's anachronistic at the end of the day? Or how would you approach that? Because I know you guys have a, at least a little bit of a disagreement on some of that. Yeah, well, it's, it's uh, I guess my, my uh, he hesitation is, uh, I think that that's helpful. And it's, it's a legitimate way of thinking theologically for us, you know, helping us to kind of come, come to grips theologically with what we have in um, earliest Christian texts in the New Testament and and trying in our own way to try to come at it in the way in which fourth century Christians did mm -hmm. uh, for their part. So I think it's a it's a legitimate effort, it deserves to be taken seriously. And there are there are ways in which I guess I could I could affirm that, uh, particularly in the way in which uh, Richard uh, Bauckham uh, defines identity at times. Uh, but it is a constructive theological task that he's doing. Mm -hmm. It's not simply, with respect, he, he would probably disagree, but in my view, it's not simply historical exegesis. It's verging on a more constructive theological project, perfectly legitimate, but it's employing categories, uh, terminology, such as identity, that, you know, obviously isn't used in the, no New Testament writer says Jesus and God occupy the same divine identity. Mm -hmm. And Richard would rec readily recognize that. That's his attempt, or a modern attempt, to try to capture what he thinks is going on in the New Testament for theological purposes. Um, I would say that's that's okay, and, and that's uh, that's something that uh, you can do if you want to do that. Um, I'm a little more, I don't know, uh, hesitant and less uh, less bold when it comes to uh, constructive theological work and, and concentrate more on just trying to grasp <clears throat> what are the historical... Uh, features of earliest Christian discourse and practice. So I would say that um, Jesus is included in the worship of God. Uh, Jesus is included in the devotion that is given to God in the practices that I've isolated and um, is, <clears throat> in, is, is given to share in the divine name 
and the divine throne and God's glory. And in that sense, in those sense of the word, I guess you could say, well, okay, if that's what you mean, then yes, he's included in the divine identity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's uh, and honestly, I mean, you know, we don't you don't need to we don't need to pit the two things together, but rather say that you know what you're doing, what he's doing, and what some others are doing are, are complementary things and and helpful, you know, in different ways, but not exactly doing the exact same thing. That's right. Yeah, and and um, I guess I <clears throat> I would say I think we always need to keep distinct <clears throat> we we need to relate them but we need to keep distinct the language and the statements that are used in our primary sources in this case say the new testament early christian writings mm-hmm. to look very carefully at what they are saying and and leave them try to capture them just as much as we can in their own terms and then the subsequent task is theological reflection to say okay and what do we make of that for our purposes mm-hmm. And both steps are legitimate, but I think they both have to be kept quite consciously distinct, and we have to make sure that we know what we're doing when we move from one to the other, and be careful not to sort of backflow too much the latter step of theological reflection, not to impose that too much unconsciously onto the primary text, which... um, And and so that's why in that that little book, God in New Testament Theology, what I tried to do was to say, let's... Let's just try to tabulate and, and, and codify the way in which the New Testament writers talk about God. And theologians can then do with that what they will, but let's first just make sure that we are um, capturing the way in which these earliest texts uh, talk about God before we go on to do our talk about God. Yeah, that's helpful. So what would you say in New Testament studies right now on on Christology and some of these topics, what are... What are some of the promising things moving forward that you're seeing that you'd say, hey, this is really helping and expanding on the research? And what are some things that you just say, we just need to go ahead and put that one to rest and uh, stop arguing about it? Well, I think the uh, there, there continues to be a legitimate uh, project of trying to probe ways in which um, um, earliest Christians um, consciously or unconsciously expressed their uh, beliefs about God and about Christ in the context of uh, the wider Roman religious environment. So one of the things that's been done recently by by some younger scholars is to emphasize, uh, and by some senior scholars as well, to emphasize ways in which early Christian beliefs and so on may have um, either implicitly or in some cases explicitly been in conflict with um, the religious claims and practices of the of the larger religious Roman environment. In particular, of course, some scholars have argued that early Christian uh, devotion to Jesus and claims about Jesus were, in, in, in the eyes of some people, explicitly and deliberately in contradiction to the claims being made for the Roman emperor. Mm-hmm. And um, that's a hot topic now. Uh, with people arguing it uh, back and forth, you know, uh, even and, and the broader question is Paul anti-imperial, right? Or uh, and and if so, is it deliberate or is it implicit or what? So those are areas that I think um, we're continuing to see some argument and discussion about. Um, I've read some of the stuff at least and have some opinions on it and have blogged about it a bit occasionally. Some of the works I find. Um, not as persuasive as uh, some of the authors think they are. <laughs> um, but uh, I think it's a valid area to explore. I certainly agree that um, that there is interaction with uh, emperor worship and with the larger um, uh, polytheistic uh, practice of the ro- larger Roman world, very explicitly from the, from the letters of Paul onward, as in the case, again, of 1 Corinthians 8 and 10, where Paul explicitly contrasts uh, the altar of the Lord Jesus with the pagan altars and practices of worshiping God and Christ with the uh, with uh, the practices of what he calls uh, you know worshiping demons. So there's a quite quite evident uh, explicit contrast there, and at the same time a certain analogy being drawn. I mean, when you say you cannot share the table of the Lord and the table of demons, well, in both cases you have a table. You know, there's a certain mm-hmm. analogy and contrast being drawn. And as you move on into the late second century, or sorry, late first century, uh, I think, with some other scholars, the increasing usage of um, 
son of God language that we have in the in the later New Testament writings uh, may not be coincidental uh, to the increasing use of son of God claims and language under the Flavian emperors. Hmm. Um, and uh, so there, there, I think these, these areas of ways in which early Christian, uh, thought and, uh, was, um, engaged with and, and contrasting with and, and shaped in some sense over against, um, Roman pagan practices is a legitimate area of, of interest for which there may still be further things to be said. Um, I'm interested in the way in which, um, right now, one of the things I'm, I'm interested in is the way in which um, one aspect of, of early Christian devotion is the writing of Gospels, such as the, the Gospels we have in the New Testament. In my book, Lord Jesus Christ, I refer to these as literary expressions of Jesus' devotion, quite remarkable literary expressions mm-hmm. of Jesus' devotion. And it's a continuing question. Why did it occur to the author of the Gospel of Mark, with most scholars, I think he's probably the pioneer here. Why did it occur to the author of the Gospel of Mark to write a kind of biographical type narrative of Jesus 40 years after Jesus' crucifixion? If early Christianity was able to get along in those crucial first few decades without a written biography, Mm -hmm. why did it occur to them to write one? And then once Mark wrote it, it appears there was this kind of minor explosion in such works, uh, the other canonical Gospels immediately appearing within within a decade or two, <clears throat> and obviously showing some kind of relationship to one another. So they all read one another's works and were influenced and shaped by them and produced them. Uh, what does this mean <clears throat> to write a biography of Jesus uh, at a point when uh, biography was becoming very much a popular genre in the time of uh, the Gospels. And um, uh, and some people have explored that, but I think there may be further things to explore there as to what, what that means, what that signals about uh, their intentions and how they wish to sort of put Jesus before. Uh, we've assumed, and it's probably true, that the Gospels were written primarily for fellow believers, and that's probably true. But the question that I think some people have begun to explore very creatively is, were they also intended to be read by Mm -hmm. non-Christians? We know that they certainly were by the second century, certainly. Um, We know that uh, leading intellectual figures of the time, such as um, Celsus and Porphyry a little later and uh, others were, were certainly reading the gospel very carefully for the purpose of trying to show contradictions among them and trying to refute early Christianity. So they were able to get their hands on the Gospels, not just one, but but uh, more than one, so that they could show the alleged contradictions among them. So um, so how early does that interest in and reading of the Gospels uh, begin? And was it something that may have been intended from the first place? I mean, were they were they writing biographies of Jesus because they thought this would help, uh, this would capture the attention of a wider um, readership more readily than theological treatises or something, you know? Um, so there are various things that could be done. Um, and, um, uh, you know, bright young PhD students are constantly discovering new ways of asking the question. Yeah. And then what, what's on the other side? What are some things that you're just, you're tired of hearing about and wish, uh, wish we would just give up on? Well, I think one of them that I think is long since, I mean, for decades now, I think has been settled, although it, uh, um, it has a kind of zombie existence. It won't, it won't like, won't play dead is, um, you know, the, the son, of, son of man stuff. I mean, I think that that's just, that's just a dead issue. Um, there, there was no son of man Christology. This term son of man was never used as a Christological title. There was no pre-Christian figure called the son of man. Hmm. And people need to stop making such silly statements as if there were. It's just, it's just a dead issue. And that's been shown from the early 70s onward. Indeed, one of the foundational pillars of Bousset's case that I argued had been eroded back in my 1979 article was that, that there was no um, figure called the son of man in Jewish tradition. And the earliest Christology of Christianity was not that Jesus is the son of man. Um, so we can, we can lay that to rest, I think. Um, yeah. And, and uh, I think that uh, one of the other things that we can lay to rest is the notion that, um, uh, that the treatment of Jesus as divine, and sharing in divine honors uh, happens slowly, incrementally, 
and as a result of large numbers of um, converted pagans coming into the church. Mm-hmm. My my late friend and sparring partner, Morris Casey, notwithstanding, uh, who made that sort of claim, I, I just don't think that that squares with the evidence at all. It seems to me that that already in the letters of Paul, we have a kind of treatment of Jesus as sharing in divine glory and divine honor taken for granted. And uh, I'm much more happy with the kind of uh, chronological perspective articulated by Martin Hengel, who argued that, you know, within the first um, 15 years or so, 15, 20 years of Christianity, more happened Christologically than in the next 800 years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And do you think, um, is there anything that you see coming down the pike that's kind of a good challenge to this thesis? So it seems like, you know, uh, and I would agree just in the little bit of stuff that I've done, just looking at Bousset's claim is sort of most of that kind of stuff that you just explained has been debunked for the most part. Is there anything that's coming new that you're like, oh, that's actually a good critique or a good challenge that we need to think about? One of the, prob- probably to my mind, um, the the most um, uh, interesting uh, suggestion or argument has been made by, by perhaps by people like uh, Adela mm-hmm. Yarbrough Collins and a few, couple of people that that perhaps, um, and, and to some degree, um, uh, uh, William Harbury a bit, that uh, ruler worship, uh, not just emperor worship, but ruler worship in places such as Egypt and Syria and elsewhere, may have um, sort of unconsciously uh, influenced early Christians uh, that, uh, no, they didn't deliberately ape emperor worship or or simply uh, make Jesus into a kind of um, marketable uh, right. demigod, but that maybe in some way their thinking was unconsciously shaped by it. Now, how you would go about demonstrating that something, how you how you'd go about exploring the unconsciousness <laughs> of of early first century yeah, psychoanalyzing biblical know. authors is hard to do from two thousand years away. <laughs> yeah, and uh, and that suggestion has been made. I have given reason in um, in a couple of publications for why I don't find it persuasive, but that's you know I mean that's my opinion. We'll but see it belongs at the table and it's worth thinking about for sure. Uh, I think it can be argued yeah. out further. Yeah. You know? All right. Well, thanks so much for taking the time. We've almost been an hour already, so uh, that went by quickly. Uh, so I'll let you get back to what you're doing. But thanks for taking a little bit of time to talk through this. I'm um, my pleasure. I hope uh, hope your uh, broadcast goes well. 